Thank you. Good morning. Before you take your seat, I want you to turn around again and greet somebody and tell them it's really good to see you. Thank you, guys. All right, if we can begin to take our seats, sound man, um, Wally, can you lower it please, it's a bit loud, good morning, good morning, I trust that in the midst of all that has been happening, it's a bit loud for me here. Is it loud? It's loud, yeah? Is it loud? Is it loud? It's loud here, isn't it? It's loud. Can you, Wallet, could you um, overhear the monitors? Maybe you can lower them and reduce the treble, treble a bit, please. All right. How many of you were at the um, Apostolic Summit yesterday? If you were there, wave. Was it a great time? We had an amazing time. It was such a blessing. We are going to continue our Alpha course. And um, before we begin, I want to say a few things so that you can really be attentive when you come to these courses. One of the things that I have found that many believers don't know how to share their faith to people who do not know the Lord. And so they tend to um, would say something like, you know, well, I know what I know and I believe in God and I feel and so forth. And one of the good things about Alpha is that it presents the information in such a way that if you study it, you'll be able to also share your faith with greater clarity and understanding. And so I want you to open your hearts, not only to hear, but also to learn in such a way that you will be able to communicate your faith, especially what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about who Jesus is. Now, as I'm sharing, I will also be speaking into your lives through the word. So don't think that because it's on Alpha, you know, it's, it's not really meaty enough. Any subject in God's word has depth to it if it comes from the throne. And if your spirit is sensitive, you will hear what he has to say to you in the present, in the now. So I, I want to encourage you to open your house. All right, so let's talk about who Jesus is. Austin, can you help me with the time? All right, because you have eaten into quite a bit of mine already. <laughs> no, but he's done well. Come on, give Austin a hand. This is his first time. It's not easy. When you're sitting there and you're watching... It looks very easy. You think, ah, oh, you should do it like this, you should do it like that. But when you come here, you realize that your holy faces have some power behind it. And it's a different vibe altogether. Okay, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 16. We're talking about who Jesus is. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said... 
Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you Simon Bar-Jonah or Simon son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. This is a very interesting verse because in this verse our Lord Jesus asks the question, who do people say that I am? And throughout history and even in modern times, no, the volume is fine, thank you. Oh, you guys can't hear. You guys can't hear at the back, yeah? Can you hear at the back? Okay, then you have to increase the volume and just reduce the monitors here. All right? Thank you. I'm getting some signs over there. Is it all right now? Excellent. But it's too much here. Yeah. Hallelujah. All right. Let's begin. Let's go again. So there are, there are many, many of us and there are many people who have opinions about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus in this chapter asks the question, who do people say that I am? So even in the church today, we have opinions about who the Lord Jesus is. And uh, throughout his earthly life, even though he did all the things that he did, people had different opinions of him. Some thought he was a reincarnation of Jeremiah. Jeremiah had come back. Some, one of the prophets had come back. Some thought that he was a resurrection of John the Baptist because he was doing miracles. And some thought that he was a false prophet, a sorcerer. In fact, that was what the Jewish leaders said about him, that he was a sorcerer. And throughout history, different ones, and I'm talking about reputable people, learned men and women, have not denied that Jesus Christ of Nazareth walked the earth. They have not denied that. But they have had an opinion of him that might be different from what the scriptures teach. Some have seen him as a good moral teacher. Some have seen him as a prophet. And some have even seen him as a disappointed and psychologically troubled young idealist. That's how they view Jesus. Now, the question is, in the church today, and even you that are listening to me today, who do you say that Jesus is? Now, many Christians see Jesus as their personal savior. Jesus is my personal savior. He exists as their personal savior to serve their needs and do their bidding. That's how many Christians today see the Lord Jesus as their personal savior who exists to serve and save them. So who do you say that the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of man, is? Who do you say that he is? The true follower of Christ will not only see Jesus as their savior, but will also call him Lord and allow their lives to be centered and built around him. 
Because it is when our lives as believers is centered and built around Jesus that we are able to face all the challenges that comes our way. Beloved, just because you serve Jesus, just because you may know who the Lord Jesus is, does not mean that you are going to have things easy for you now. There is such a wrong perception about the Christian faith that at times people are presented with as if it's a salesman giving a marketing pitch. You know, come to Jesus and your problems will be solved. Come to Jesus and every sickness and every disease that you have will disappear. Come to Jesus and you will have financial breakthroughs. Hey, come to Jesus and uh, what was once lost is now found. Money is coming. Health is coming. Blessings are coming. Everything good is coming and everything bad disappears. That's at times how people see coming to Jesus. And then when they come to Jesus, they hear something else from him. He says, if you would come after me, you have to be willing to put me first regardless of the pain, regardless of the circumstance, regardless of what comes your way. So who do you see Jesus to be? It is when our lives are centered around him that we can face the challenges of life. Let's look at Luke chapter 6, verses 47 to 49 to outline this. He says, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? This is the challenge that many people have today. You know, we're doing alpha. We're talking about who Jesus is. But I really want to challenge you believers about who you see Jesus to be. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. I want you to observe five things here. First of all, calling Jesus Lord is not enough. We must learn to do what he says. Our Lord says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do the things that I say? That's the first thing. If you want to know who Jesus is, and I'm talking specifically to believers right now, then you need to be willing to do what he says. Secondly, we must come to him and hear what he has to say to us and then do what he says. In other words, after you've given your life to Christ, you must learn to always approach him, to hear what he has to say to you, and then do what he tells you, even when it hurts. Because in the second part of verse 46, he says, you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that I say. 
And then he says, whoever comes to me, verse 47, and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he's like. So the third thing is this. Our lives must be centered and established around him. He says, he is like a man who builds his house. He's building a house on a rock. He, lays, he dugs deep, he, he digs deep, he lays the foundation, and he builds his house on a rock. Now, what does that say to you? It says this, beloved, when we are coming to the Lord as believers, we have to be willing to consider the implications, the cost. Anytime the Lord Jesus gives us an invitation to draw nearer to him, there's going to be a cost. Now, you see, the marketing strategy that Jesus adopts is not what we will adopt. A whole heap of people were following Jesus. And he turns around and says to them, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. First of all, that's a very strange thing to say. Some of them thought he was actually talking cannibalism. But some of them said, no, nah, this is too, too much. This is too much. This is a hard saying. Who can follow it? Why does Jesus do that? Because he has to be the Lord of your life, of everything, or he will not be Lord at all. I know some of us are going through some challenges right now. We've been praying, we've been fasting, we've been seeking God. And we haven't seen what we would like to see. And the danger of that is for us to feel like God is obligated. No, beloved, the privilege is ours to know the Lord Jesus. I know this is Alpha, but this is, we will do, we'll go through the Alpha program. This is part of my pastoral responsibility to you. Amen. The fourth point is this. The challenges and difficulties of life will not be you will not be able to overcome the challenges and difficulties of life unless your life is centered around him. Look at the second part of verse 48. He says this, and when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and it could not shake it for it was founded upon the rock. Everyone who gets to know Jesus goes through floods, goes through challenges, goes through difficulties that will put them off serving the Lord. Maybe some of you who have been invited to the service today, you've experienced some things that were not very nice, and so you turn back in serving the Lord. It's a normal experience, beloved, in knowing Jesus. And the last but not least, living our lives outside his will and outside his ways is a recipe for disaster and ruin. Look at what he says in verse 49. He who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell. And the ruin of the house was great. I have seen over the years many believers, they start well. Then they face some challenge, some major challenge as far as they're concerned. And that's the end. Why? Because their lives was never centered around Jesus. It was centered around the church. It was centered around music. It was centered around the preacher. It was centered around the family of believers. But it was not centered around Jesus. So, who do you 
say that Jesus is? And who is Jesus as far as your life is concerned? Is he somebody who is there for your convenience? Or is he Lord of everything that you are and that you face? So on that note, we will examine briefly the merits of the Christian faith and the claims it makes about Jesus through the Bible. Now, when we begin to talk about Jesus and the Bible, you cannot prove the Christian faith and its merits mathematically or scientifically. It's not possible. At times, people try to use science and maths to say that, and say that it shows that the Bible is accurate. No, the Bible is a book of faith. Now, as important as science is, and it is, science does not have all the answers. Science tries to answer the questions of when and how this world came into existence. But it can't answer who made the world and why the world was made. Now, Nicky Gamble gives an example of baking a cake. I'm not a baker. You may think I am because I'm an eater of cakes. I'm not a baker of cakes. There are some skilled technicians in the church and in my house who bake cakes. My wife bakes cakes. My son can bake cake. My daughter can bake cake. Me and Joel can eat cake. Now, if you took a cake that has been baked to a laboratory for analysis, science will be able to tell you the ingredients of that cake. They might even be able to tell you how the cake was made and probably when the cake was made. But they will not be able to tell you who made the cake and why the cake was made. And if it was in my house and Aisha made the cake, the likelihood was primarily so that I can enjoy the cake. I believe in Jesus' name. <clears throat> in the same way, only the creator of something can tell us who made it and why it was made. So, if there is a God, and we believe there is a God, he is the only one who can tell us why this world was made and how, and, 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 and the purpose behind this world. He can tell you who he is and why he did what he did. So, that is the difference between science and faith. Science is very important because it deals with the scientific questions that this life and this world brings to us. Equally, faith is important because it answers some very fundamental questions about life. Now, the thing is, everyone has faith because everyone has the ability to believe something. An atheist believes there is no God. They use that believing ability to believe there is no God. Now, you cannot prove scientifically or mathematically that there is no God. You can't. But an atheist believes there is no God. And that's their choice. Now, those of us who believe in Jesus, 
do so also on the basis of faith. But our faith is backed by three things. One, personal experience, which we commonly refer to as our testimony. Secondly, historical evidence. And thirdly, the Bible. Now, somebody will say, what historical evidence? Historical evidence is very important. Because just like scientific evidence is valid, historical evidence is also valid. Most believers come to faith based on events that took place in their life that led them to conclude on the merits of the Bible and the claims of Jesus Christ. All of us who've come to faith can point to certain experiences that brought us to that place. So faith in Jesus, believe it or not, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, faith in Jesus is not a blind leap of faith. It is faith based on that which has substance backed by historical evidence. So while scientific evidence is important, it is not the only kind of evidence that is acceptable or valid in this world. I'll give you an example. Historical evidence is a valid form of evidence that is used in the court of law. So legal decisions are made in court often because of historical evidence. What happened before? They are made on historical evidence, not because somebody observed it and repeated it and then got a result. That's what science is. You observe something, you repeat it, and then you have a result. No. In the court of law, you look at what has happened in the past. And based on what has happened in the past, you come to a conclusion. But you cannot repeat what has happened in the past. So historical evidence is valid evidence. This principle applies to how we make up our minds about Jesus. It is a step of faith based first on historical evidence. So the question is, did Jesus exist? And if he did exist and there was an actual resurrection, then it will prove that God exists. And it will prove that the claims that this Jesus did or made had substance to it. Now, just as we cannot be known until we reveal ourselves to others, God also can only be known by how he reveals himself. And the Bible tells us, the Bible, now we will look at whether the Bible is valid or not, but the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, that God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. In other words, God spoke through prophets in the days of old, but has now finally spoken to us through his son. In other words, Jesus is God's way of saying, this is what I am like. This is what I am like. So what is the historical evidence about Jesus? Well, the truth is, you just need to do a little bit of research on the internet. 
and you discover there is overwhelming historical evidence that Jesus Christ existed. And honestly, there is no serious historian having examined all the facts who would question a historical Jesus. So the issue with a lot of the secularists is not that there was not a historical Jesus, is that they don't believe that the claims that the Bible makes about him are valid. All right? So there is evidence, historical evidence, outside of the New Testament about Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Um, I'll give you a few. Yes, he's, she's agreeing with me as well in spirit. There's a Roman historian called Suetonius who mentions the early Christians and refers to incidents in the Bible. There was one incident in the Bible in particular in Acts chapter 18 verse 2 where the Bible says that Emperor Claudius had banished the Jews with the, uh, the Christians, with the Jews. He had banished the Jews and so he meant the Christians from Rome. And Suetonius refers to this incident about the Jews being banished by Emperor Claudius. That's one example. Um, in fact, I'll read what the quote says. As the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Christos, which is Christ, right? So the Jews, because of Christ, they were making all this, they were causing all this chaos in Rome. They were persecuting the Christians. And it was a big issue. He, Claudius, expelled them from Rome. Okay? So this incident is recorded. All right. Another example is a guy called Tacitus, who's another Roman historian. Now, this guy did not like Jews, and he did not like Christians. But look at what he wrote here. I'm going to read it. He says, consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt, that is, the guilt of the burning of Rome, and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the region of Tiberias at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil. He's talking about the superstition about Christianity, right? But even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty, as in pleaded guilty to be Christians, and then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of fire in the city as of hatred against mankind. You see, the crime of Christians was that they were against mankind because they did not embrace the traditions of the Roman Empire, which was idolatry. And they refused to say Caesar is Lord. And so for, for the Roman culture, it was like you were a traitor to the state. Now, this was a, a person who hated Christians, and this is what he records about Christianity. Tacitus. Um, there's other things. And then there's another guy called Josephus. He was a Jewish historian. And this is what he's quoted to have said. He said, at this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. And when upon the accusation of the principal men among us, 
Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them spending a third day restored to life. For the prophets had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. That's in Josephus' book. Now the interesting thing is the secularists say that was inserted by Christians. Now the thing is, if you've ever read Josephus' writings, they are huge. It's volumes. So if I was going to insert something about Christ, I wouldn't insert this. I would insert a lot more in different places. This is a passing comment he made because he was talking about something else and he just said, and during that time, this was going on. These are historical documents. Now, what about the New Testament Bible itself? How do we know that the New Testament Bible that talks about Jesus hasn't been changed over the years. Because, again, the Islamists would tend to say, your Bible has been changed. Your Bible has been changed. And because a lot of Christians do not know their Bible, they say, really? Really? Is it so? Your Bible has been changed. But the reality is that we can know if the Bible has been changed or not through a science called textual criticism textual criticism now it works something like this the more manuscripts you have and the earlier they are the more you can be sure about what the original text said so this is how historians decide on what texts what manuscripts have validity and uh, one professor called professor bruce from the University of Manchester, wrote a book called The New Testament Documents. Are they reliable? And in it, he shows how rich the New Testament is in the sheer weight of manuscripts by comparing it to the texts of other historical works. So, again, with textual criticism, let me just say it like this. As you read, as you read something that is a copy of an ancient manuscript of any kind, the way you know what you are reading is what the original author wrote is by asking two questions. The first question is, how quickly after the original was written was the earliest copy made? And then the second question is, how many copies are there? So let me show you ancient writings that are deemed by scholars as valid when they are compared to the New Testament. The first one is um, documents by a guy called Herodotus. I, just, I don't know if the name is up there. I don't know if they, I don't know. Is it up there or not? It's not, okay. So you can, you, can, you can listen to the message again. So Herodotus, he existed from 488 to 428 BC. And basically, he, he, the earliest, he, wrote, he wrote some stuff about history. The history between the Greeks and the Persians. And uh, the earliest copy that we have, that is, that we have is around AD 900. So that's over 1,300 years later. The earliest copy of what he wrote is, there's a 1,300 year gap. And we have eight of these copies. Eight of these copies. Okay, so it's in the red book. What I'm sharing is in that red book, so you can look it up there. And then with Tacitus, the writings of Tacitus, 
there is a thousand year gap between the original and the first copy. And there is a total of 20 copies in existence. And then there is something called Caesar's Gaelic Wars. There is a 950 year gap between the original copy and the first copy. And there's a total of nine or ten copies. And then there's something called Livy's Roman history. There's a 900 year gap between the original copy and the first copy. And there's a total of amazingly 20 copies. Now, these documents are considered authentic. They are considered valid. Okay? There is no disputing about them. So, the New Testament was written between A.D. 40 and A.D. 100. The earliest copy we have of the New Testament is A.D. 130. So, that's a 30-year gap. And the full manuscript is A.D. 350. So, that's a 300-year gap. Now, we don't just have 8 or 20 manuscripts. No. We have 5,000 309 Greek manuscripts. In other words, that were copied by scribes in those days, 5,309. And then we have 10,000 manuscripts in Latin. And then we have 9,300 other manuscripts. Now, my question is this. If we are able to agree that the Gaelic Wars took place by Caesar... And Livy's um, stories on Roman history is authentic. When there's only 20 copies and 10 copies, and what Herodotus said, which has a 1,300-year gap between the original and the copies we have, we see these documents as authentic. Why do we question the authenticity of the manuscripts of the New Testament? When there's so many of them and the gap is so short. The answer is a moral reason. It's not a scientific reason. So we can see that this brief analysis shows an, that the New Testament stands absolutely unapproachably alone amongst the ancient writings that exist. And no secular historian worth this all can disagree with that conclusion. So, When we look at what the New Testament says, what does it say about Jesus? Because these documents, you cannot dispute the authenticity. We've already established there's historical evidence of a, a Jesus of Nazareth. Validated by people who were not of the faith. And then we see that the manuscripts that talk about this same Jesus, we have the original. So what do they say? A few things. Was Jesus fully human? Well, he had a human body. That means he got tired. The notes are out there, up there. He got hungry. The scriptures are there. He had human emotions. He got hung, angry as well as hang, hungry. He had compassion. He showed love. He felt sad. He wept when people were sad. He had human experiences. He was tempted. He grew in understanding. Believe it or not, Jesus actually grew in learning. In Luke 2.52, the Bible says Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor of God and in favor with man. He, he learned stuff. He worked. He was called the carpenter. He was a carpenter's son, but he was also a carpenter himself. And he also was obedient. He learned to do what he was told to his human parents. But he was more than a man. 
He was more than a great human being. What, what did he say about himself? He centered his teaching around himself. He spoke about himself. He made indirect claims about himself by forgiving sins. He said, he said things that said he was going to judge the world one day. And he made direct claims about himself. Just keep looking here. He made direct claims about himself. That he was the Messiah. That he was the Son of God. Now, some of the Muslims will say something like this. Jesus never said he was the Son of God. It's not true. He actually said, I am the Son of God. Some of the Muslims who say Jesus never said he was equal with God. He actually said, he said he was equal with God. If you look at John chapter 10, if somebody, John chapter 10, if we can have it up, verse 36, you will discover that Jesus made some amazing claims about himself. Have you got it up there? John chapter 10, 36. It says, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. He said it. The point I'm trying to make is, is this. He made these amazing claims about who he was. He said he was the Son of God. He said, he, he implied he was equal with God. He accepted worship and all of that. So in conclusion, and I bring this to a conclusion, if these are the things that Jesus said about himself, and if he taught things about life that showed that he was more than just a man, he was fully man, but he was also God as a man, what are the implications? Can you afford to allow yourself to still think, maybe, about Jesus or are you willing to accept the claims that he makes about himself and he said this in John chapter 14 verse 6 he said this I am the way the truth and the life no one can come to the father except through me amen 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 it's okay I'll, I'll finish amen thank you no, it's, it's my fault. I signaled to him. So what I want you to do now is to go into your groups. And I want you to discuss what we have learned. Is that all right? So we're going to go into our groups. And then we're going to discuss about who Jesus is. And uh, you don't need to do any icebreakers. If you just ask yourself what's your name and so forth. So you have 20 minutes to discuss. All right? So why don't you do that right now? Please just feel free, turn around. I don't know, Austin, do you want to come and give any further instructions? All right, let's do that right now. We have 20 minutes to discuss. Let everybody speak, and then we'll come back together again.